Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we are discussing chapter 13 and we will be covering this chapter in three parts over separate podcasts. This is part one. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So Pete, welcome to chapter 13 and I am super excited about this chapter. Yeah, I, I must admit. Hi Alice, and this is this yeah, this is a a, a chapter that really explodes one or two things and i think people some people might be offended by spensky's views on, on the way that they believe the world to be in in this chapter it's a very interesting chapter and there are some little gems and nuggets within the text that that, that do seem hidden but we'll try to explore some of those as we go along i think yeah, I think that's a great idea. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. This is Chapter 13, and there are, what, 23 chapters so and a conclusion, yeah. so 24. It's almost like this is the second half of the book, and it's it has taken on a whole new a whole new facet. He has done away with his mathematical model. His mathematical friends are either on board or, or not at this point, but he has really got stuck into... The real stuff now, and I think, I think it's 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 interesting that it's a halfway mark that we're we we're, we're now off onto that that part of the the book. I start looking at this as two books. You know, where we've been to up to chapter twelve is book one, and for people who want to investigate what um, dimensions mean and have a mathematical description of how we can perceive. Um, multiple dimensions and you know particularly dimensions one two three and then the speculation on what the fourth dimension might be um that comes out of those that's fine read that if that's what you want to do and people might be interested and i'm sure that a lot of people are i'm i'm not one of them i think that came across <laughs> in the pre and the previous things but i actually think that if you could cut this book in half and you you took the chapter 13 that we're about to discuss as chapter one of a whole new different book you you'd have a, a different experience i mean i think i think that a lot of people that would get so much out of what comes now are put off because by chapter three it's like i can't be doing this this isn't what i thought it was so for anybody out there that that, that might be thinking that um, Spensky was dense and he's talking about things that don't interest you and you think that you've been fooled by, by a book that's going to be about <laughs> um, consciousness and the numinous and so on and you're only finding uh, dense explanations of different planes of existence, then this is the po this is the point at which you could begin. This is the book for you. Chapter thirteen is the start. Yeah, that's that's my take on it anyway. That's how I feel about it too. Um, well, I'm I'm a hundred percent with you there. I uh, doing the scaffold for this chapter. I went oh, at last. Here we are launching, launching. So let's launch into it. Let's launch so, into it. Yeah. Let's launch into it. So he starts with, and this is something that was mentioned in the introduction about 
now I think it's pronounced Goethe, Goethe's Werther. Yeah, Goethe's Werther, yeah. Goethe, Goethe's Werther. So this was a book that, it was a book, it was a novelette that was written by uh, Goethe, I think back in the 1700s. And that, it was basically, yeah, when he was alive, yeah. But it was basically uh, a kind of based on a true story. He he was in love with two women and both of them had other partners and he had a friend who was in love with someone else but anyway the friend committed suicide shot himself over uh, unrequited love i mean this is in essence it was kind of the mills and boons of those days and it was a novelette anyway it got very popular i've got to stop you there i've got no i've got i've got to stop you there i'm sorry i, I mean i know that that's a really patriarchal thing of me to do to put in so you I'm let me get this right. You just compared Goethe to Mills and Boone. Storyline, the storyline, not not. I'm just going to let that rest there, and if people don't know who Goethe <laughs> is or was, they can look it up, and then they can understand my horror and shock. But, but, anyway, <laughs> right. Sorry, I well, didn't mean well, to disrupt you. Okay, so it was my well, my take on the storyline was that it was it was full of high drama on the romantic from the romantic scale of uh, well people being in love with other people who weren't available in essence uh, either emotionally available or literally available because they were married to someone else. But all right, so we'll take the Mills and Boons aspect out. The point was it became very popular, and it was very popular. So much so that people who had situations that were unrequited love style of relationships were starting to mimic the uh, suicide of the character in the book or the novelette. And, uh, and so there was this epidemic of suicides. Is that your take on the story? Because I could, I just, I just looked well, it up that, by. Uh... Well, yes, no, that that is exactly what happened, and it is the story. I, I'm st I'm still reeling from the Mills and Boots game. <laughs> let me just, just let me just just I'm going to move on, but I have to say, Freude schöne Güte Funken Tochter von Elysium. Listen, this is the guy that wrote that. The music by Beethoven. I mean, Beethoven was so inspired by the Ode to Joy that he wrote the Night the Symphony. Any core all about it. Oh my God! And and he's now Mills and Boom. There's a relegation for you. <laughs> all right, I take it back. I take back the Mills and Boom no, comment. No, you, you've made you've I made my morning. Back. That's that's. I'm just howling with mirth <laughs> at this one. I would never have thought it. But anyway, we're on, we're, we should be on Uspensky. So let's let's move on. Yeah, and that but that is exactly what happened. Yes. So that is exactly what happened in 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 Goethe's book. So why has Uspensky mentioned it? Well, Spensky has used this as an example of how positivistic science could easily equate the reasons for the suicides not being the contents of the book. So looking at uh, the book as more than just paper and covers and physical weight, et cetera, et cetera. But, but his concept of being a, a book is something physical, but there is also something about knowing that a book has contents and if you if you don't know how to read a book or you don't understand that you miss the real purpose of the book that's the that's the point that's the point it's not knowing that the book has this purpose beyond its weight construction the materials and the size and 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 the color and so on and basically in a in one um wonderful 
really truly wonderful paragraph he virtually destroys um material positivism i i mean everything else uh, adds to it in this chapter but he's done it right there yes well that's the thing but he's, he does it a little bit later in the book as well he does in sorry in the chapter as well he he gives it a real oh yeah we we've, we're going to go through all of the reasoning behind this it's good so what Ospensky said is, is, is what you were saying. He's saying that if, if positivistic science was looking at the book and saying, well, the book and suicides are related. So how are they related? Well, let me just study how many A's are in the, in the book, the letter A, and then, you know, study the letter B and find out which letter is occurring the most and then say, well, it's the, frequency of the letter a that has caused the suicides like you could come up you could use well any measure it's not and we're not talking well he doesn't that's he doesn't actually say that he doesn't actually say that it's the cause he says that there is a, all that they can do is give a correlation people reading yes. their reports would then imply that it's a cause and, and this is what happens all the time ah good point exactly right so in essence science doesn't really tell you the cause, but it, it, it gives you data, information. Mm. And then from that information, extrapolations are done. Has nothing to do with the fact that the book and the storyline was so emotional and so hard hitting on people that it evoked a desire to, to mimic. Mm. So that's where he starts. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's a valid point because a book clearly is more than it's positive, um, as more than a positive phenomena in the world. In other words, if you take a book as just being um, a construct of paper and whatever the cover's made of, the pigments that go into colouring it, the dye for the ink and so on, and that the, the words on the pages are merely squiggles, i.e. you have no idea of content if you don't know that there is content then you will never even try to investigate the book you'll be looking at it from its material um construction and the, the and they'll look at a book as a material phenomena in the world with no other value whatsoever and and with no other component whatsoever i'll give you an example that spensky touches on as well um hieroglyphics if you first came across hieroglyphs, you would probably see them as decorative patterns, as ornaments on an object. Exactly right. It's only when you get this ping moment that you say, hang on, there are repeated patterns of these, these paintings. I wonder if this is a form of written communication by glyphs, in other words, images, pictures. And then you get some, and then once you know that there is this hidden reason, you can then investigate it. And eventually we ended up with the Rosetta Stone. And because we knew Greek, um, we could actually then correlate the Greek to the Egyptian. And this is how the, the translation of Egyptian hieroglyphs came about. I mean, there wasn't, there were other language on there. I don't, it might have been Akkadian. Akkadian might, no, I, I can't remember the other language, but there were three uh, on the Rosetta Stone. And it was because, but it, but it was the Greek that, that got, got us the correlation. And that's the very interesting point that he's making. He's saying that science is very good at explaining how and what. And I think, you know, when we talk about science, we're really talking about not just 
to me anyway, not just science in this case, we're talking about the way we have been taught to see this world because we've all gone to school, we've all learned this this way of of examining things, you know, we're taught. So it's 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 broader than just science. But we're taught to look at something and explain the how and the what. How fast is that car going? How heavy is that piece of gold, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's out of its depth when it attempts to explain the why and what for. And so with the book, if you don't know that the book is something you read, there are contents to a book, you are, you don't actually understand the, what a book is. Hieroglyphics they're ornamental unless you understand, as you said, that they are a, a means of writing. And I'll just read you um, the quote that he, he says to, to support this. He says, no secret cipher exists which cannot be solved by the aid of any key, but it is necessary to know that it is, that it is a cipher. That is the first and necessary condition. Lacking this, it is impossible to accomplish anything. So it's, it's Exactly as you said, it is asking the question, is there something more to this than meets the eye? And by the way... Until you ask that question. And by the way, it takes, it takes something to provoke that question within us. So yeah. somebody has to be sitting there and have one of those ping light bulb moments where they think, hang on, there could be more to this than just pictures. There seems to be some repeating that's, that's not constant. So what is it? Yeah, but whatever it is that, that causes the ping moment, I mean, we're using hieroglyphics as, a, as an example. It, 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 this, is, this happens with everything. When we're trying to find meaning, we have to have this moment of something that says there's more to this than meets the eye. Mm. We have to have that moment. Yeah, and without that, you are still in this three-dimensional experience of what you see is what you get. You yeah. can't go beyond it. And this is what I found, this is what I found fascinating is because it's not about understanding anything other than just starting with asking that question from that. Do you find though that, as you said, because this is what we are taught about science, I mean, we go to school, we're forced to go to school um, from a particular age to a particular age, and we're taught, uh, we're taught to actually revere science. It's the new religion and mm. we're and sci the science that we're taught to revere is unerringly positivistic. Uh, you, you'll, be, you'll be struggling, other than in the far reaches of, of daring and courage, to find anything in the scientific world that is anything other than positivistic. So you, you now find the, um, the knowing idiots. I, I, I don't, I mean, maybe that's a harsh, harsh word to use. But people who will actually clamour like a mob against anybody that makes a suggestion that goes against positivism, that goes uh, that actually involves some investigation or querying of the positivistic um, approach and what science says and the the, re the great um, reverence that we're supposed to have for scientists, particularly medical science, I might add. Uh, and we're supposed to re we're supposed to revere it unquestioningly. And if you put a, a different point of view about anything, or even suggest that that it might be worth investigating, that we're missing a, a different meaning here, you'll find the 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 nod nod wink the nudge nudge wink wink knowing mob 
who are uncritical and don't investigate anything coming down on you and calling you idiots, idiotic and so on. Science, people who've investigated things over, over centuries have had this. It's not, a, it's not a new phenomenon, but I think it's worse nowadays because of, we have so many forms of communication, social media, podcasts like this, and goodness knows what else. Um, but, you know, we, we, we are now fighting the tide in a way that people never have had to before when you just want to pose a question about um, the take on the world that we, we've been led to believe is the only take on the world. Was that a rant? I'm 100% with you there, Pete, because I have found with this coronavirus pandemic thing that's going on at the moment, I've got to a point where if I dare question what's going on, most of my you know, sort of people around me will, will will be upset that I've actually questioned. I've actually asked a question. All I've done is ask a question. Uh, then the question I usually ask is, well, they are now isolating everybody, putting everybody into seclusion, et cetera, et cetera. Has that actually solved the problem in Italy? Because they've done it first. Has it solved the problem? That's all I've asked. But you'll get the yeah, but the, the the mob will turn around and tell you, yes, but they did it too late, and that's why it exploded in Italy. That's well, you know exactly what? what's happened. Um, so basically, what you'll find is that they'll have an answer to that will support their point of view that comes after the fact. We see that in a lot of areas of disputable science these days. But I, I mm -hmm. you know, without without going into that, I mean, the other problem is. Nobody, you know, you're dead right. And, and it's, it's right to question what's going on in a way, because the lockdown, if the lockdown isn't total, it's a waste of time. If you build the Great Wall of China, which they did, or I'll tell you what, a better example, because it's more modern-ish. Uh, uh, it's, you know, it's about 80 years old. Second World War, the French after World War One, still frightened of Germany and Germany's uh, they knew Germany would grow again. It would come, it would rise out of the ashes. So they built the Maginot Line. We thought this will stop any war. But they had a problem. Where their border hits Belgium, what do they do? Will the Belgians allow them to continue to build the Maginot Line over their northern border and then offend the Germans? Little Belgium, you know, can barely defend itself. If they build the Maginot Line around the bottom of Belgium, Belgium will go say, hang on. You're leaving us outside the wall to be killed if the Germans do invade. As a consequence, the Maginot Line ended at that Belgian border. In other words, it didn't go right the way across to the coast. Um, do I need to remind people what happened in 1940 when the, when the Germans under Heinz Guderian decided that, that yeah, you know, yeah, we're going to do you, France. France, we're going to have you. They took one look at the map and thought, well, not, why would we waste all of our resources getting across that impenetrable Maginot line when we just got to go through this forest here in Belgium, the Ardennes Forest? And what did they do? They sent everything in there and within two or three months, France was owned by Germany. Now, by not having a 100% total lockdown, i.e. people can still go to the supermarkets here, they can still go shopping, Essential services can be out there and you're going to interact with them. Once you have that chink in the Maginot line, then the Maginot line itself is completely and utterly worthless. And this is what we have now. But people don't want to hear that. They still say, lockdown, social distance. You've got to keep your distance. You've got to. We've got this thing now where the government in the UK 
a, a secret department within the cabinet. Well, it's not that secret that everybody knows that it's there, but they, they're the ones that use nudge theory to get things done without having to create laws. They've now decided that the, the unhealthiest thing that a human being can do is touch its own face. So they're spreading the idea that if somebody is touching their face and you see them doing it, you're supposed to point at them and shout, face, face. But that, that is the latest. Listen, youth, I'm telling you, nudge theory works. They are the ones that put out this thing called social distancing now. And that has now become a phrase. It's almost Orwellian newspeak, but people are uncritical of things, which is why it's interesting when we come back to this chapter on Uspensky, now that we've had our little aside about what's going on here, uh, you know, and how easy it is to manipulate perception and science, when, because science has been, certainly in the 20th century, science became the new religion and, it's, and it remains so. And it's positivistic science that, that is remaining this. The, the new religion and scientists are the are the new high priests and so it's very very difficult to get people to accept anything else which is why you get people pointing at you and pointing the finger and people who've never investigated anything they've never done any independent investigation of anything seem to think they know it all based on no investigation whatsoever and there's the point if that's all you do is regurgitate what you've been seeing, uh, what you've been told, what you've been taught, you're never asking the question. You're never even turning to the hieroglyphics and going, gee, that's a pretty picture. I wonder if it means anything. And that's right. And so it's, it, it's becoming more and more difficult for people to pose those questions now. Which religion, which religion that you've ever heard of in history has encouraged critical analysis of its beliefs? Uh, yeah, no, I don't think I've come non. across any. And si and That'd science, be none, yeah. And science is the same. It does not encourage critical examination of its beliefs. You're supposed to take what the scientists... Why do governments say this? Our government scientists have told us, and we're telling you, and then everybody... Oh, well, scientists have said it. They, they're the cleverest people on earth. They, it must be okay. People don't criticise, and we have the same thing here. This is why Spensky has to take on positivism and expose it to the light of day as the limited thing. Look, it can take us so far, and it has done great things for us, but for us to revere positivism in the way that we're taught to is actually going to stunt our growth as human beings and as a race, as the human race. And it is doing that. That's that's what Ospensky is doing in this in this book, and in, certainly in this chapter, he's he's exposing positivism to some kind of critical analysis. Now, you may you may um, read this chapter and say, you know what, he has made me think, but I'm still going to fall back on the side of positivism, and that's your choice. But at least you will have thought about it instead of just being uncritically just regurgitating the nonsense that the the new religion has told you to regurgitate. I love this chapter for, for making people think in this way or suggesting that people think in this way, not making them. Yeah, suggesting. Absolutely. The, the, the next interesting point that I think from this is he talks about philosophy of long ago and he is talking about that the phenomena, phenomena and noumena, phenomena being what you see, physically see, or what you can experience in this third dimension with your five senses, and the noumena is the hidden, the, the cause behind 
behind that, um, likening it to the analogy he had of the five fingers on a two-dimensional plane to a two-dimensional being just seeing circles and not understanding that the the hand belongs to those circles and then it's the man and and etc. So the noumena is the what you can't what you can't see that is causing the phenomena. But he's saying, I'll just read the, this uh, little um, few sentences. The idea of the existence of the visible and the hidden sides of life was also known to philosophy long ago. Phenomena were regarded as only one aspect of the world, seeming, not existing really, arising in consciousness at the moment of its contact with the real world. Another side, noumena, was recognised as really existing in itself, but inaccessible to our receptivity. So the interesting point is that this isn't, an, this isn't a new concept, and yet it seems to have been buried by science. And I think that's where he's, where he's coming from. Well, he is. Um, the, the thing that, that he's, he seems to be doing here is, is wonderful. He's actually exposing that something happened to scientific investigation somewhere at some point um, and I'm going to suggest that it started in the 16th century and then the age of reason in the 17th century that came out of that mm. and I, I'm absolutely quite certain that what he's doing here is asking people to look, at, look back at what science was in the old world. If you look at Aristotle's writings which much of Aristotle's work is still extant. I mean, it, it, this, it, it actually is one of the, the prompts of the um, Renaissance. So you look at Aristotle. Aristotle wasn't a one-trick pony. Aristotle stepped there and said, okay, well, music, let's examine music. Now let's examine literature. Now let's examine um, other phenomena that we can examine. And, and he was like a great physicist, but he he looked at all areas and he didn't think that any of them was separate. So that you know the influences of one area of investigation on another area of investigation, even things that are untouchable, things like ethics, Aristotelian ethics and so on, well known and well documented, have a part to play in all other investigation as well. You know, so. I think it's great. I, I think he's showing us that the way that science is now and, and the way that it has become the dominant religion, it wasn't always like this. And some of the great names that we still revere even now from thousands of years ago were not scientists in the way that we see science now. We wouldn't recognize them as. We would call Aristotle, what would be the phrase? Oh, jack of all trades. How more, how more insulting could we be? But, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, we probably would. You know, Pythagoras as well. You know, what if you've been to school and you probably have heard of the Pythagoras theorem, you know, the, which, which is how to work out the, the, the dimensions of particular triangles and so on. You know, the, the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides and so on. Um, as though that was all Pythagoras ever did. He had a mm. philosophic school um, that, that was one of the great seats of learning in the ancient world. And if you investigate, I mean, people still, people are still Pythagor 
Pythagorean even to this day. They still follow his philosophic um, way of life and and they we try to work out some of the hidden writings that haven't survived. Um, they didn't survive the, dis, dis, the destruction of the Alexandrian library. Um, but what we can make of it, we know that there's something very special going on in the Pythagorean school. And I think the only people that have investigated that are the the, the late 19th century, early 20th century secret magical societies. But that, that's taking us way down a track that we don't need to go to at this moment in at this moment in time. Yeah, but but he is he is coming to that, and that's what he's saying here is why have we separated the investigation of, into phenomena and forgetting altogether about noumena as if they're two separate things? And it makes sense to me. How how can the cause of something, even though you can't see it? and the result of something that you can see be two separate things. Without one, there is no other. Um, and, and the investigation of one is intrinsically tied into the other. So he's, I'll read you what he says. But there is no, great, there is no greater error than to regard the world as divided into phenomena and noumena, to, to conceive the phenomena and the noumena apart from one another and susceptible of being separately known. This is philosophic illiteracy. Yeah, stop there. What a, what a phrase. I love that. I love that. I this is too. philosophic illiteracy, which shows itself more clearly in the dualistic spiritistic theories. Don't you love that? He's just, he's, he's, what he has to say there is, is 100%. You, you're looking at this world and going, well, all that we, we understand can be measured and understood. And the cause, if we don't know it now, we will understand it at some point, but it's all in this sphere. It's, it's, it's all just a matter of time. It has nothing to do with uh, anything that we can't physically see. So it's basically wiping out any concept not to, to even consider looking any further than this three-dimensional experience. It, it's, it's chopped it off at the knees. And, uh, yeah, and then, then he, he's saying that, well, you know, if that's what you think, that we can separate the cause and the effect, uh, as two separate things, well, then you're a goose. That's what I think he's well, basically saying. Well, the the other the other the other nice thing to think about once you once you're actually exposed to um, what Uspensky's written there is the other thing that comes. We are now living in a world where we consider the effect to be the only thing of importance, and not the and that the cause is unimportant. In what mad world would that be the case? Yeah, because the biggest belief. Because for us, um, as anything, uh, you know, if we understand anything, the cause there is, there can be no effect. In other words, there can be no phenomena at all without cause. And if you're just looking at the effect, you have no way of controlling that. You have no way of making Fashioning a change it. Yeah. because that's right. Yeah, because basically you you're not you're not even in tune with where it's where it's coming from. Uh, he uses a, a great example later on when he talks about the shot being taken out as a simplistic uh, a, a simplistic thing uh, without all the other strands that are attached to it, uh, which we'll come to later. But it's, yeah, he's, I think what he's made, the point he's made here is not only do you ask the question, but you have to consider that everything is connected. Nothing is standalone. So studying something standalone. Just as he's wrecked um, positivism, he's now um, 
turning his sights on uh, dualistic theory, dualism. Mm. Exactly which, right. Which is interesting, you know, the, the 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 separation of bits. I mean, I would I would love. Um, I would I wish that he mentioned the atomists uh, like Parmenides, these great ancient um, philosophers from the Ionian coast, but because they were they were trying to work out um, analogies by um, using paradox to describe how things can't be separate. So you get the, the great um, paradoxes of Zeno from the Ionian coast. But I, I am not going to digress here because we've got so much to go through. If people want to look up Zeno, X-E-N-O um, would be the, the spelling from the English alphabet. So from our alphabet. And so, you know, you can look up um, Zeno, um, Ionian philosopher, you'll get the paradoxes of Zeno. And it's like, you know, you, you can't divide something infinitely. Every time you cut something in half, you'll have halves to then continue down. You will never get to nothing. At what point, at what point do you say, ah, we've come to the essence of the thing? You can't. You can't, no. If, a sh if you shoot an arrow at a target. Now, there are people that have made convoluted explanations for, for the, the paradoxes of Zeno, and I'm not going to claim that they're perfect, but they do make you think about these things. So, for example, the arrow. If you shoot an arrow at a target, the arrow must first get halfway to the target, and then it's got half the distance still to go. Before it can get to that distance, it again has to get halfway between that and so on. If you keep cutting it in half, the logical um, expansion of that is that the arrow never hits the target because it's always got <laughs> half of the last distance to go. Yes, yes, but it does hit the target. Yeah, but it, but we know that it does. There are explanations about you know the 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 things that um, are wrong about the paradox, but I think that's unimportant. I think it's the idea that we have to think about things that there is a connection, that we can't just divide things into half, into discrete sections. The, they're a good way of uh, uh, introducing people into the idea that dualism might not be the way that the world really exists. And we see that all the way through his book. He talks about dualism. He talks about the concept of this and that. Um, and let me get some examples for that. Like, he, well, he talks about phenomena and noumena. Uh, being you know being considered separate things he talks about um the the planet well we can go on we can we're going to come to some things here i've I've made some notes about one or two of the things that that we should perhaps mention but let's move on and and we'll come to them let's move on so the 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 point he makes at the end of this little little part is that you don't need to understand the noumena to perceive the phenomena um the example of a book in the hands of an illiterate savage, and uh, I'd say he does run with the illiterate savage a lot. Well, well, I liked it when he when he called the savage crafty. Uh, what was what, in, in one of these? A what? The what? The no, it was, it was the wise and crafty savage. The wise and crafty. <laughs> yes. Well, so so we'll, we'll just we'll just let that one go. We've we've given him a serve over this before. Yeah, but, we have. Uh, yeah. The example of the book in the hands of an illiterate savage shows us quite clearly that it is sufficient not to know about the existence of the noumen of a thing, i.e., the contents of the book in this case, in order that it shall not manifest itself in phenomena. On the other hand, the knowledge of its existence is sufficient to make possible its discovery with the aid of the very phenomena which 
without the knowledge of the noumena would be perfectly useless. So, so he's in, in essence saying, you know, just because you don't understand the cause doesn't mean you won't perceive or, un, or see the, the phenomena that it manifests, uh, which to me is very interesting. It is to me because the, another great example, if the book isn't too, you know, isn't obvious enough, is the the idea of um, that Uspensky puts here of putting a watch in the hands of the wise and crafty savage. If the if the wise and crafty <laughs> savage doesn't understand that those turning wheels and the mechanism inside making the hands go around are supposed to tell us something to do with something about time. First of all, the crafty savage would have to have a concept of what time was and that this was an instrument of putting it in a place. Um, without that, all it is is a decorative toy. The meaning of what a watch actually is, without that, all it is is an object. So let's, let's extrapolate that a little further. I look outside and I see the trees and the fence and the house and, and whatever, uh, and I just take that as that, that is what it is. Well, maybe that's not what it is. Maybe in some other invisible realm, those things are something entirely different and this is just what I, I perceive in my um, experience. Well, I'm not even interested in uh, my perception of the, the trees and the natural world. Once we come, once we come into this chapter, I, I'm looking at why are they there? I want that question. I want why. Yeah. Why, why have these trees been manifested here? What was the underlying impulse? What was the underlying cause? What was the new pneuma behind this? What had an idea that it would be good to create these? Enzo Ferrari had a great idea that he wanted to create a, a, a racing car. So Enzo Ferrari was the noumena behind creating the racing car. We won't go into what, what put the idea into his mind, but let's just use it like that. He said, I want to, I want to create a racing car. So he went out and built it. Who the heck wanted to uh, create a planet with these trees on? What was, what was the impulse? They don't just exist out of nothing. Well, here's my point. What we see is these things that we we don't understand why they exist because they look to be existing out of nothing. But maybe what we maybe they weren't made for this world. Maybe their purpose is in the invisible, and they're doing what they are supposed to be in some other way. Then we're just seeing some cross section of them. The purpose isn't necessarily here. Why are we seeing them at all then? Why do they, why do they um, cross our plane? And their energy, whatever it is, whatever it is we're seeing when we see a tree, it, it, becomes a, it becomes necessary for us to have trees. If we didn't have trees at all in the world, humanity would die. We, we Absolutely. Would not but that mightn't be their only purpose. I'm not saying it's their only purpose. I'm just saying that I'm just saying that there is a connection to us. Uh, you seem to be suggesting that they got, there might be, that they they have something else and they're nothing to do with us. But I'm going to suggest that they are everything to do with us and that that's why we see them, we interact with them. Well, maybe I'm not making myself clear enough. I guess what I am saying is that what we see and what we have may not be the only reason that they're there. That's more like it. I, I, there might be other There might be other things that they do, yeah. They might be connected with something else that we do not see. That's exactly right. So that's that's where I'm heading with this. I'm saying, well, at the end of the day, uh, the why 
and the, the for what reason uh, could be bigger than just here. Yeah, could well and be. And could be way be beyond our understanding, potentially. At the moment. At the moment. So having said that, because we, we're looking at the, the book and uh, we're not... I'm not expecting just to come away from the end of reading this book to go, oh, well, you know, all Spensky did was state the obvious and there's nothing more I can do to to experience things any differently because I'm expecting to understand, well, how, how do we ask these questions? What, what questions do we ask, et cetera? And so he starts to go a little bit more into this. He says, uh, so let's have a look at the function of man and if we're if we're thinking that man is as as science would say this whole world is about the physical phenomena the mechanist the mechanistic materialistic uh viewpoint then that 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 would imp- uh, that would suggest that man is just a mechanism um but we know that's not true so i'm going to read what he says we pictured us we pictured to ourselves how incomprehensible the functions of the candle and of the coin would be to the plain man studying two similar circles on his plane in like manner the functions of a man are incomprehensible to the scientist studying him as a mechanism the reason for this is clear it is because the coin and the candle are not two similar circles but two quite different objects having an entirely different use and meaning in the world which is relatively higher than that plane and man is not a mechanism, uh, but something having an aim and meaning in the world relatively higher than the visible one. I think this is kind of linking to what we were saying a minute ago about our purpose and our meaning in this world is not just about this world. It's about our potential meaning in um, higher. Well, can I can I talk about the economic man instead and just forget that? previous paragraph and just say Spensky actually starts putting things together when he talks about the concept of the economic man yes this I love is, the economic man let's go to there that's the next the very this is what this is well, leading into so that's that's a good segue yeah. then. let's go so so basically the idea of the economic man is this this idea that we see humanity all of humanity uh, as having these two two dimensional aspects and I, I said it again but you know but he talks about these being production and consumption. We're either consuming or creating. And that's, and that's pretty much how we're seen. That's all we do. And, th- and this yep. is the conventional view. This is the positivistic view. We're, either, we're creating or consuming. And that's all we do. Um, and he calls this the plane of production consumption. And I don't mind him using the word plane there, obviously, but, <laughs> and, and this is a beautiful little throwaway question. How is it possible to imagine man in general as such an obviously artificial being? Because that sounds like a robot. It takes away the element of thought, consideration and investigation. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. When I read this, I, it blew me away because I thought even back a hundred years ago, this was where society was. That's where their focus was. Oh God, yeah, um, yeah. The industrial revolution had been designed to do that. To yeah, do that you, exactly. Please, please so. read that. Please I, read yeah, that. I would like yeah. to read that little paragraph because it's 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 a it's a corker. Mm, it is. So he says, but two-dimensional knowledge exists not alone on the plane. Materialistic thought tries to apply itself to real life. A curious result follows. 
the true meaning of which is, unhappily, incomprehensible to many people. One of such applications is, and this is inverted commas, the economic man. This is quite clearly the two-dimensional and flat being moving in two directions, those of production and consumption, i.e. living upon the plane of production consumption. How is it possible to imagine man in general as such an obviously artificial being? How is it? Oh, no, forget Shall that I last bit. Yes, please, I've run out of quote. And how is it possible to hope to understand the laws of the life of man with his complex spiritual aspirations and his great impulse to know, to understand everything around him and within himself by studying the imaginary laws of the imaginary being upon an imaginary plane? The inventors of this theory alone possess the secret of the answer to this question. I'm going to come back to that. But the economic theory of human life attracts men, as do all simple theories, giving a short answer to a series of complicated questions. And we are ourselves too entangled in materialistic theories to see anything beyond them. Hold right there. First of all, he is describing the hysteria and panic that is going on right now. We're recording this. In case posterity listens to this, we're recording this in the middle of the great coronavirus crisis of 2020. AKA the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. And, and so many <laughs> other things. But, but coming back to how we apply um, what Uspensky has just said mm -hmm. to that. The inventors of this theory, this idea of humanity just being on the plane of production or consumption, consumption now being in the forefront of the, the psyche of, of humanity, the inventors of this theory alone possess the secret of the answer to this question. What's he alluding to here? I'll tell you what he's alluding yeah. to. And, and, I, and by the way, not speculation, I'm telling you what he's alluding to, that there are forces that shape the way that the mass of humanity thinks. Just like ancient religions used to do it, now we've gone beyond that. And there are forces that control the thoughts and the beliefs and, the, and therefore the ways of living and perceiving of the vast majority of humanity. There are people that know that there is something beyond this production, consumption way of perceiving human life and all life. So that's, that's one bit. The, and here's the way that they do it, that follows immediately. The economic theory of human life attracts men as do all simple theories giving a short answer to a series of complicated questions. And this is what you see now. And it doesn't matter what the truth of the argument is, whether there is massive danger from some all-encompassing death-killing machine of a coronavirus or whether there isn't. What really counts is that the mass of people think they know the answer and they are ready to come out and shriek in support and defense of the very few scientists, I might add, that are used to say, oh yeah, you've all got to stay indoors and lock yourself in. Um, there might be shortages. You better go out and raid the supermarkets and so on. They believe that it's a danger without investigating it. They take it as read that it's dangerous. And that's happened in so many other ways. Dare I say climate change. We now have new speak phrases 
that nobody investigates it and actual climatologists when they say scientists now they they're going they're almost aristotelian in other words a scientist now knows everything if it suits their purpose because they're not going to investigate anything but if a scientist says that climate change is the greatest crisis well man created climate change the climate's always changed and it always will but man produced climate change and by the way i'm not talking for it or against it here i'm just showing using it as a way to demonstrate what happens They've, we even have Orwellian newspeak phrases that have been introduced by who knows what, like denier. You're a climate denier. These people that are shrilly pointing the fingers at people who just question the, the mass point of view that's out there, the religious point of view that's out there, I should say. Um, they have people who've done zero investigation whatsoever saying, well, scientists say this. When, when half of those original scientists turned out to be people who were investigating robotics or something, or, or a science that has absolutely nothing to do with the climate whatsoever, but because they're a scientist, we were, we were led to believe it. You know, a lot of the names on the, um, the, the, the people that wouldn't sign it, there are, you can look this up, there were a lot of actual climatologists, people that were studying climate, that wouldn't sign the United Nations science thing where there apparently 2000 scientists were supposed to have signed it saying look we all believe this it's a thing and a lot of scientists who were climatologists found their names on there when they hadn't actually signed it and didn't even agree with it so you know what we're saying here is that this idea that you give people a simple answer to a complex question and people won't go and question it and investigate it and anybody that does they will shout down because the, the one or two that do investigate it make them look foolish for not investigating it. And people don't like to be made to look foolish. And here's the thing. How do the few control the many? They make the many control each other. Each other. And that's happening right now. Yep. And how do they make the many control each other? They tell them they're going to take their toys away from them if they don't. So we are so entrenched in the uh, materialistic financial situation that our very existence appears to depend upon it. And to do this, you, ha you have to have people believing that they are either consumers or producers. In other words, you have to have people believe without thinking, without questioning, that all we are is the economic man. That yeah, there's nothing and else. There is nothing else. Once they believe that, you you control them. And I'd just like to revert back to because because Spensky here has talked about the savage. But remember our conversation before about the hunter gatherer societies actually having a real grasp on a connected way of living. And I think that that does say something here. They're not a society that looks at the economic producer or um, consumer and yet they are, they are considered savages well the lie also they had there has to be a lie told about those people so that other people the the economic man i.e the mass of humanity um, won't long to go back to it there's a phrase i think it's used by hobbes in leviathan life is short and brutish etc etc 
uh, you know, the, for, for the for the savage and so on. It's not the certainly in Australia where you're based, um, the the wise and crafty savage, and I use that in inverted commas because these these are so some of the most involved and oldest humans on the planet. They're hunter gatherers. They spend, uh, and this can be looked up. You can look this up. They when when they're in their natural um, environment, and there are still are a few a few left that are. They spend on average something like two hours a day hunting and gathering. How much time do you spend, just? investigating what it's like to live and enjoying the things that you enjoy and how much time do you spend worrying about where the next quid's going to come from how you're going to pay your mortgage where you're going to go on holiday how much it's going to cost what toys do you want what car do you want how much time do you spend not stressed they spend virtually their entire lives not stressed yeah so i think we are so attached to our material possessions like a hunter-gatherer has a very simple set of possessions you know the the tools he uses or she uses to cook and hunt and uh and and basically the things you need around the average you. australian native owns owns in and i use that in a very loose sense um possibly three to five items that's it so as opposed to us we're so attached to our possessions and i look around my house and i think i have so much junk at some point i've bought this stuff Within arm's reach of me here, I could touch maybe 20 separate items um, that I own, maybe more. And that's literally within arm's reach. Okay, there's the cover to the microphone. There's a microphone. There's the microphone holder. There's part of the mic stand. There's the other part of the mic stand. There's the cable. Um, there's a Marantz field recorder. I've got... Um, and look, look at this for materialism. I have a Mont Blanc pen. I've, I've got a Vox um, guitar amp here. I have a dehumidifier, a cup, a stool, a tablet and a tablet cover, um, a tripod here, a phone, the cables that connect the phone, headphones on. I've got um, a heater. The, the list is endless. I'll stop right there. But you get the, you get the idea. These are all a stress for me and they are for anybody. I own them. But I enjoy owning them, and I probably have been brainwashed and hypnotized into being the sort of person that 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 does like having them. Um, I can tell myself, as all these people in the the New Age spiritual movement can, oh no, I I'm I'm not materialistic at all. Yeah, you are. Give everything you own away. Give everything you own to the poor. I have not seen one single spiritual person and, and by the way i'm surrounded by them which is why i'm putting on this contemptuous voice they're always telling me how to live my life and not just me personally but everybody and and you know faced with that i'm not materialistic i'm so spiritual you know oh I, i'm not bothered about possessions give everything away no they don't none of them none of them not no one. do you remember and, and that's the thing i'm the same i have a load of junk and I look around and I think most of this stuff I actually aren't enjoying anymore. I, at some point I've bought it and it's just surrounding me as junk. Um, and there are a few things that I really enjoy, obviously, that, you know, that, that I'd like to keep. But I think some, at some point I have been a consumer. Why did I buy this stuff that I no longer enjoy? At some what point. Do you mean, what do you mean at some point, Alice? You still are. 
we both are. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not get on that horse. Okay, that's well, enough. that's, yeah, I'm just talking about the stuff I've already got. Um, oh, okay. and into the future. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking about the stuff at some point I have bought because I wanted to buy it, obviously. Um, then I've been a consumer and uh, I can't say I'm much of a producer, but the thing is I'm in that, I'm in that mode. I'm in that, that mode. I, I could not become a hunter-gatherer the, in my current state. And why is that? And I'd say it's because from the, the moment I was born, my training and my programming has been otherwise. And, this, and, and for anybody that's wondering why this part of the conversation is here in this podcast about Ispensky is, it's because we're using it to illustrate the fact that this idea of even questioning what the numinous might be is a very difficult step for people to take. However, however readily they think that they've got such an open mind and they'll, they'll look at this, that and the other, people tend not to have that. What they say and what they do will define them. They're, 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 hey, there will be a duality about that in many cases. You know, you, if yeah. where your actions match, match your words, that's a rare thing to find. Uh, you know, and so this is why we've been having this this talk about the current situation, about the state of humanity, and about hunter gatherers and so on, because it is an important consideration. Uspensky doesn't make the point that it's difficult, but he implies it. I mean, the implication of this whole chapter is that positivism has taken such a hold on humanity that the 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 voices in the wilderness saying hang on, let's question this, are few and far between. And it, and yet it should be the most important thing that we do. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Yeah. And so on. The, these are important questions. And, and that's what he's saying, that these should be the most important questions. Whether you agree or not, it's neither here nor there. But that's that's what I think he's saying in this whole chapter. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's I go to work to get the money, to buy the food, to get the strength, to go back to work. That's that's our cycle. <laughs> And that, and that, you see, when you see the cycle like that, then something in your mind says that's ridiculous, and you go, ha ha ha. But how many people will have that ha- laughing moment and they hear that? Because I've heard it doing the rounds before. Um, how many people hear that and then just change their lives immediately? Um, I, I think probably none. Yeah, people well, I'm still with you then there. continue to go to work to earn the money to to pay the bills and have the strength to go to work. And yeah, and I look, I'm one of them, and. That's and that's the economic man, and that's what we mostly that's yeah. what the vast majority of humanity are. And a lot of humanity that isn't the economic man in our um, stretch of the imagination, say parts of the, the world that we um, derisively call the third world or, or the undeveloped world, they are straining at the bit to become the economic man. In Europe, the, the flood from Africa is huge, you know, it's particularly North Africa of people wanting to come in. And it's like, if you could do one thing to change their lives, it would be, please don't give up what you've got. And instead of, the worst thing we ever did was go there and give them the means of communication to see how we lived and persuade them that our way of living was aspirational. Once we persuaded them that, then they're not satisfied with a life that was so much easier and so much gentler and, and, had so much going for it, but nevertheless, that is what's happened. 
it's like a disease that's spreading. The economic man yeah. idea is a disease that is spread around the world. And Spensky uses that to say, well, hold on. If that, if that is our purpose, if that is truly our purpose, then science could prove that we are just mechanisms, we are just robots, but that is not provable. We, in fact, the opposite is proved. He said, um, uh, we asked, so he says, you know, if, if, um, if life and consciousness is simply a function of physical phenomena, so in other words, that it comes out of the irritation of our cells it would be a, we would be able to create life and consciousness by a mecha, uh, by a mechanical method and that is not possible so there must be something more than just this me this mechanical method of living um, and there must be a purpose outside of that uh, so i'll read what he says but to all that it is possible to answer one thing if it were true it would have been proven long ago Nothing is easier than to prove the energetic hypothesis of life and consciousness. Just create life and consciousness by the mechanical method. Materialism and energetics are those obvious theories, and he uses the rabbit's ears around obvious, obvious theories which cannot be true without proofs because they cannot not have proofs if they contain even the little grain of truth. That's right. But there are no proofs at the disposition so that, so of those theories. So they're not true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's quite right. the reverse. Yeah. So so the thing is is it's almost like we're so distracted by this and he calls it the you know the, the two dimensional type of thinking that we that's stopping us from asking what else is there and and why are we here beyond that. He said the infinitely greater potentiality of the phenomena of life and of consciousness compared with physical phenomena assures us of the exact opposite. And we have a full right to declare that energetics is just as subjective a theory as any doctrine of dogmatic theology. That's probably going to offend a few. Well, I said this, <laughs> this chapter would, uh, and I know that it will. They'll, yeah. You know. So we're going to break there, and uh, next podcast will continue with Chapter 13. So thanks very much, Pete. I look forward to the next instalment of Chapter 13. Fantastic, and I look forward to being here with you, Alice. It was fantastic today, and it'll be fantastic going forward because we know what's coming. We know what's coming. So thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We look forward to your company for Part 2 of Chapter 13 next week.